You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Good morning. Oh, that was great. Um, that was a great good morning, Ed. I, I like that a lot. That was cool. Uh, I appreciate you letting me be a part of your series on Romans 12 through 16. So if you could please find in your Bibles or in your smartphone, whatever it is you use, um, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm going to be emphasizing Romans 12, 2, but Romans 12, 1 and 2 go together. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is asking, I believe, and I'll explain this to you, Christians, to make a counterintuitive decision, something that our flesh, when we're asked to make this decision, our flesh goes, I don't think so. And it is also an invitation into a special community of Christians. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me, I'm going to be reading from the Net Bible, which is my favorite translation of the New Testament, the Net Bible. But if you have your Bibles, Let's just look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and think about this counterintuitive decision that uh, Paul speaks of in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. It is a counterintuitive decision. I have been discipling men for over 40 years, and I can't think of one man that I've discipled in the 40 years that I've been discipling that somewhere during the discipleship, disciple is, discipling is, if you're new, if you're new to Christianity, we use a lot of words you don't understand so that we can confuse you thoroughly. And you would think that we're really smart and we have something like special religio talk. One of those is discipling. Uh, it really just means to mentor. The word disciple, uh, disciple simply means a learner. What we have to remember is that the writers of the New Testament weren't making up Christian lingo. They were just borrowing front words from the culture that they lived in. And to be a disciple meant to be a learner from a teacher. To be a learner or a follower or someone devoted to Christ. So I've been discipling men for about four decades, and every man I've ever discipled, there has come a time 
For I have brought him to this verse, and I have said to them, this is something that as a Christian God wants you to do. Romans 12, 1 and 2. In fact, I, uh, sometimes if I only have a short period of time, I'll ask a guy to commit to discipleship, and I will say, I want to take you to my three favorite verses from the pen of the Apostle Paul to help you understand what Christian, Christianity is all about and to set you on a, on a trajectory toward the, the life that God really wants you to live. I'll begin with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, then I will go to Galatians 2, 20, and I'll finish up with Romans 12, 1 and 2. In 2002, at Church of the Open Door, I preached Romans 12, 1 and 2. I did an 18-month series on the book of Romans, and I told them from the very beginning to the very end that when we finished this, I went all the way through all, all 16 chapters, but we came back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I asked them if they would please, if they wanted to, uh, let God know that they were giving their life to God as a Christian to do whatever he wanted to do with because it was the very best decision they could make for their life, and it was their spiritual service of worship. And we had a couple hundred people came down, we got on our knees together and we prayed, and it was really cool. But one thing I want you to notice about Romans 12, 1 and 2 is I want you to notice the word 12. Notice the word 12. If this was Romans 1, 1, this would be a catastrophe because it would be a counterintuitive decision that you didn't understand and you didn't know why, but you would do it because somebody shamed and guilted you to do it. I want to put Romans 12, 1 and 2 in its proper perspective by telling you how it is and why it is. I think this is the purpose statement of the book of Romans. I think it's why Paul wrote Romans. Paul knew that Romans was the most strategic city in the Roman Empire, and he wanted to come to Rome and meet with some Christians who understood the grace and the mercy of God and who they were in Christ and were ready to really, really do great things for Jesus Christ. I think that's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 is there. But it is a counterintuitive decision to become a part of a special community, which we might call those dedicated worshipers of God who have said to God, whatever you want to do with my life, do it. I am here. Uh, I want to take full advantage of your grace. I want to live the best possible life according to your definition not according to the definition of what the, the way the world looks at it. So I want to put this in perspective of a physical counterintuitive decision that I was, made, that I was asked to make in uh, July of 1976. In July of 1976, I went to Fort Benning, uh, Georgia, and I went to the Army's Airborne School. And on a Monday in July of 1976, I stood in the door of a C-130 at 1,250 feet, and they said, jump out of this perfectly running airplane. <laughs> this is what came before. There was intense training that came before. Airborne school is divided up into three weeks. First week is ground week. And in ground week, we would practice over and over and over again. 
you had to all, first you had to be physically qualified to go. But in ground week, we would run and we would run and we would run and we would run and we would do push-ups. And we would de- uh, you could see the, looks, they had these big canopies that had sawdust. And if you've ever been to Fort Benning, Georgia in July, if you've ever been to Columbus, Georgia in July, you know it gets very hot. I can still remember getting ready. I was in ROTC at UC Santa Barbara getting ready to be commissioned into the Army. And some of the guys who had been to airborne school said, you know, sometimes it gets up to 98, 99 degrees there at Fort Benning. I'm from Bakersfield. And I remember thinking, what a bunch of wimps. I had never been in humidity in my life. It was the 98, 99 degrees like running with a wet towel around your head. So we would get into those pits and we would practice over and over again for a whole week, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, We would get into that trainer and we would practice putting our hands there and we'd practice jumping out of that C-130 and we would practice what's called the PLF, uh, parachute landing fall. And we would practice them going backwards, we'd practice them going frontwards, we'd practice them going sideways, we'd practice them in every way possible because if you don't know how to do a parachute landing. It, it, it's easy to land a parachute. It's not easy to land in a parachute without getting hurt. So we would do parachute landing falls over and over and over again. And one of those things, that one you see at the bottom there, on the uh, bottom left hand of your screen, are these guys with their hands like this and they're jumping up and down. See that? Well, here's what would happen. That black hat was the guy that was in charge of jump school. Was The black hats were the ones that ran it. And they would sneak in behind you, and they would slap you on your thigh, and you never knew when it was coming. You could be buffing the floor. You could be standing in the chow line. You never knew when it was coming. And they would slap you in the, on the thigh, and you would say, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, just like that. And you'd jump up and down like you were in a parachute, going 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. So a hundred times during ground week and during what we would call tower week, they would sneak up behind you, they would slap you on the thigh, and they would say, go. And you would practice jumping up and down. After you did that for a week, they took you to tower week. And the whole time during tower week, they were saying, now here's what's happening. You are becoming airborne soldiers. You know how to do a PLF. Uh, You know how to exit from an airplane. Now we are going to take you up in the air, and you're going to do some things. You're going to scare the pajazz out of you, but you're going to figure out that you can do it. And one of those was Tower Week. First, they put us in this 43-foot tower, and we would jump out of that 43-foot tower over and over and over and over and over again. Because here's the thing on a C-130 or on a C-141 or on a C-17. When it comes time to jump, you have to jump. And if you can't jump out far enough, guess what happens? You bounce along the side of the airplane, which is not a nice thing to happen to you. And many times, as you're waiting to go out the door, um, you, would someone, you would hear someone who did not jump out far enough, and you would hear their helmet banging along the side of the, of the jet or the C-130, and you knew that you did not want that to happen to you. And then they would take us up into these 250-foot towers, uh, during Tower Week, and they would put us, they would take us up. It's a, really, it was no carnival ride that they 
just made a real parachute drop, and they would take us up in that parachute, 250 feet, you'd be at the top, and you had a safety cord, and uh, you would drop the safety cord, and then they would just let you free fall. And you would do that all during Tower Week. You would jump, you would jump from 250 feet, you weren't jumping out of an actual airplane, but you were in a parachute. You were getting practice. You were finding out what it meant to be an airborne uh, soldier. You were finding out what it involved. Uh, they would teach you how it is that the parachute would hold you up. It was interesting. Uh, I remember they t- we'd take them to the top of the tower, and they would have a safety belt. And they would go up, and they'd say to the black hats would be down on the ground, and they would say, um, drop your safety belt. One of the things I want you to understand about uh, airborne school is that it was volunteer. It's all volunteer. Here's what I want you to understand about Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's all volunteer. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is all volunteer. That's why Paul says, I beseech you. I beg you. Notice he doesn't say, if you want to be a Christian, this is what you have to do. That is not what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is written to Christians who have been through 12, 11 chapters of training, asking us to make a counterintuitive decision based upon what we're trusting in. And we're being taught to trust in that parachute. We're being taught to trust in the training. We are being taught to trust in the uh, black hats many, many times. I remember sitting down there, been there for two weeks. Oh, the other thing, they did every morning. Every morning began the same way. We'd be out of formation, and the black hat would stand out in front, and he would say, who wants to quit? Who wants to quit? And five or six guys, sometimes 20 guys, would just walk off the compound. They wanted to quit. Didn't want to be an airborne soldier. They were tired of it, so they would just quit. Remember being up in the 250-foot tower? The black hat would say, son, drop your safety cord. You'd look up. Drop your safety cord. Son, don't you want to be an airborne soldier? Drop your safety cord, or we're bringing you down. About 10 or 20 of those guys, they just, and off they'd walk. The point I'm making is, it was all volunteer. It was all volunteer, but it was all based upon training. It was all based upon training. Began with ground week, then we went to tower week, and then it was jump week. And jump week was when we actually jumped out of the, C-130, we made five jumps. It was very exciting. I loved it. Um, If I wasn't so old, I'd do it again now. If I jumped out of an airplane right now, uh, they would have to pop what's called purple smoke. Um, This is what we did when someone got hurt. Uh, Many times, as I can still remember, since I was an officer, I was the stick leader. I was the first one out the door. And I'd I'd be standing in the door. Just like you saw in Band of Brothers. Stand up, hook up, hook up your static line, shuffle to the door, and I'd be the first guy. And I'd stand there looking out, and there'd be purple smoke. And the purple smoke 
was where somebody got hurt. So they would, uh, so you see in this picture, this young man is popping purple smoke because somebody got hurt. It was a counterintuitive decision. And I can still remember standing in the door, looking out that window from 1,200 feet. 1,200 feet doesn't seem that high. Forever feet, 1,200 feet is very high when you're looking down. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what am I doing here? I shouldn't have done this. I have a wife. I have a little girl. I want to go home. And that black cat came behind me, and we'd been doing it for three weeks. He came behind me, and he said, go. I, boom, I was out the door. 1,000, and we you count to four. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Look up, check your canopy, make sure that it opened, that you don't need to use your reserve chute. And you're all flying along together. I was a pretty new Christian. I marked myself pretty early there because I can still remember. So there's a guy like 20 feet away from you there and a guy 20 feet away from you there and the sky's full of paratroopers. And I can remember I looked up and my chute actually opened and I was floating down and I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> guys are like, kind of weirdo lieutenant that I jump with. It's a counterintuitive decision, but it's based upon 12 chapters of training. It's a counterintuitive decision to say to the God of the universe, I want you to do whatever it is you want to do with my life. That is my worship of you. But it's based upon 12 chapters of training. Quick review, because I've listened to Bill's sermon. You've got to trust in the person of God before you're going to trust in the purpose of God, which is to live for him. But think about where you've been, where the book of Romans takes you through. The justifying mercies of God, chapters 1 through 4. That we are, when we believe in Jesus Christ, his grace delivers us from the penalty of sin. We have nothing to be afraid of. We never have to be afraid of being separated from God. He is ours forever. And then those exciting chapters, Romans 5 through 8, where we also find out that when we believe, not because of anything we have done, but because of Christ's work on the cross, we were delivered from the power of sin. And we can live a life that no one else could live. We, can, we don't have to live the way we used to live because we are not who we used to be. We are new in Christ. And then in Romans 8, 12 through 39, we look at the glorifying mercies of God where we are delivered from someday from the presence of sin. The big question at the end of Romans uh, 1 through 8 might be, then can I depend upon God? And that's where Romans 9, 10, and 11 come in where this great exposition of the history of Israel. Every single promise that, ever, that God ever made to Israel is going to come true in spite of the behavior that does not, that never earned any of those promises to come true. And then we come to the end of chapter 11, and that's where he says, it's just so awesome. There's this great end. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the love of God. 
The, the promises of God are irreputable. He never goes back on a promise. So after 12 chapters, I mean, I'm sorry, 11 chapters of the grace of God, we come to Romans 12, 1 and 2. To teach uh, this in two sessions, I just wouldn't do. If someone came to me and said, uh, called me and said, I want you to come to teach Trump, Romans 12, 1 and 2 to our church. I want you to teach it in one week or in ten, uh, two weeks. I just would not do it unless I was doing it here. I wouldn't. Because you know what would happen? When you give Christians Romans 12, 1 and 2, I've been in so many meetings where it's as if Romans 12, 1 and 2 was Romans 1, 1. It's the only thing they've heard. Somebody stands on stage, you dirty little dirtbag Christians, look what Jesus did for you. What have you done for him? This is in response, they say, give your life to him. You haven't given your life to him yet. That's because you don't appreciate the grace of God. You don't appreciate the mercy of God. That is a travesty. But I listened to Caleb's awesome sermon on Romans 12.1, and I know that you understand that this is not, this is not, a requirement for grace. This is a response to grace. This is not God asking you to do something to earn his love. This is God beseeching you and me to make this decision, to, to, to decide that because of his mercy, there's just really, I can't think of a better way to live my life than to say to the God who justified me by his grace, who has sanctified me by his grace, who not only imputed his righteousness, but imparted my righteousness and has promised me that I will be with him forever in heaven, has empowered me by my spirit, there's, by his spirit, there's no better decision for me to make than to say to him, okay, here I am, Ed Underwood, Bad news, bald head, fat and all, it's yours. Do whatever you want to with it. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is all about. So I'm going to very quickly, I typically don't go this deep into the Greek text. This is just so important. I want to, if you don't mind, just look at this verse very, very carefully and uh, in the Greek text, these verses and to build a little bit upon uh, what uh, Caleb and, and Bill have already built upon, just to see how deep this idea goes. I beseech you, brethren, a present active indicative uh, used to exhort. The, the word beseech there is a, is a word used to exhort troops to battle. This is a bit of a reckoning verse. This is Paul saying... To the, to the Roman Christians. You got all this grace. Now do something with it. Live it out. Take advantage of all that is yours in Christ. Don't just talk about it. Trust it enough to live it. It's a formal term of Christian exhortation from Paul. It'd be as like Paul saying, I, I'm on my way there. 
I am as an apostle issuing an an authoritative summons for when I get there, I want to meet the ones who are really dedicated to what we're going to be doing here. I want to know the ones that are all in. I want to know the ones I can lock arms with who not only get the grace of God, but want to make the most of the grace of God. Not because Jesus is saying, you better be there, but you better be better, but, Je- but because Jesus is saying, I have something better for you. You get the difference there? There's a world of difference between God saying, you better be better, you better do better, and God saying, just breaks my heart because I have something so much better for you if you would just let me have your life and and, and do what I want to do with it. I'll take you places you never imagined. That's why that great passage, you know, more than we ever imagined God can do in our lives. Um... So then he says, therefore, full inferential, inferential force off of 12, uh, chapters 1 through 11. How, how are you going to respond? Brethren, this is an exhortation to Christians, not non-Christians. It's insane. I, I've, I've been to, I remember coming, uh, our uh, youth pastors come back from conferences full of non-Christians. And the teacher picked, that's his text, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Telling non-Christians to go out and live for Jesus. And before they're halfway down the mountain, they're already realizing they can't do this. They don't have any power. This is, this is to Christians. In view of the Greek preposition dia, NIV says, in view of, and I really like it. To be real honest with you, it's one of the few places I like the NIV, but I do like it right there. It says, in view of the mercies of God. Um, His justifying, sanctifying, glorifying mercies offered universally and without distinction to all who believe that you present, and this is, This was jarring to me. It's an aorist infinitive. And I put the word jarring there. Uh, To present, to offer, to yield, to dedicate. It's the language of sacrifice. It's used in the Septuagint to mean to to offer up a a worshipful sacrifice, your bodies. And that's a figure of speech of synecdoche, uh, meaning uh, the part for the whole. Wherever my body is, my life is. And Paul's saying, I mean, you know I mean, really, I got to just look at myself in the mirror at night and I say, what, why would you want this body? He wants my life. Um, he, he, wants, he wants to use my life in, in ways that only he can. Um, unlike a living sacrifice, unlike the Old Testament sacrifice, emphatically alive but selfless. Uh, holy, acceptable to God, like the Old Testament, in the, like Caleb uh, was teaching you last time, um, separated to God in our heart and mind. 
uh, Romans 12.1, which refers to the dedication of our lives as a separated sacrifice. Is your reasonable? Is that where I have it here? Yeah, is your reasonable? And the word there is logike. That's why this is so important. Reasonable. This is, this is Paul saying to the Romans, I have given you 11 chapters of how wonderful God is. I have given you 11 chapters of how awesome it is to be in Christ. Now here's what I'm, ask, here's what I'm begging you to do. Notice he's not saying, and when I get there, you better be doing this. Even still, it's grace. I've given you 11 chapters. Now, think about it. What's the very best thing you could do with this new life that you have? You could give it to him, do whatever he wants to with it. Because he's trustworthy. He's good. He's awesome. He's doing great things, and he wants to, you to be a part of that. The dual meaning, sacrificial service. So some, you'll say reasonable service of worship. The word there has a dual meaning. That's why translations differ. It's really, the translation says worship, because in the mind of God, worship and service are together. It's just, worship is a lifestyle. It's not an event. So, I mean, it's okay for us to say, okay, we're going to have 10 minutes of worship. You know, if God was standing there and goes, yeah, well, you, mean, you mean 10 minutes of singing? Yeah, okay, but what God wants is a lifetime of worship where we're giving to him our lives. And then, you know, we come to Romans 12, 2, which was my assignment. Am I on 12, 2 yet? And uh, explains that, that, you might say that is specifically, do not be conformed to this world, a present middle. Stop conforming yourself to be shaped by, to live after the pattern of this world, uh, this age. Galatians says this age is evil. But, and a real strong adversity, the contrast to that, be transformed and it's a present, means keep on being transformed, passive. And you'll find it almost always when you have some, like be transformed. It will be in the present tense that says keep on being transformed. Obviously, we've already been changed. But when it's in the passive, it means that God is still doing work in our life. And he wants to bring the change that has already happened out and it's in the passive tense because it's grace. I'm not making myself better for God. I am trusting him. And as I trust in him for whatever decision it is, for whatever part of my life I'm speaking, as I'm trusting him, he is bringing out that transformation. Romans 12, 1 and 2 just drips grace. In view of God's mercy, open your life up to him even more. 
And um, keep, so keep on being transformed. And I think I finished, did I finish the verse? Yeah. The word transformation, metamorpho, from we get metamorphosis, and you've all heard somebody talk about a butterfly, but um, it only occurs here and in the transfiguration narratives, Mark 16, Mark 9, and 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 18, where he says you're going to be experiencing, you have experiences from glory to glory. Being you'll be transformed from glory to glory. See, that's our experience. We have absolutely already been changed. All the work has been done. All the change has been done on the inside. But as we live out Romans 12.1, and we reasonably decide, well, the best thing I can do in my life is to give it to God, and we stop conforming to what the world is telling us about life, and we start uh, allowing His grace to transform us what it's speaking of in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that we will be experience, we will be having ever-increasing experiences of glory. And that's what it's like to walk with Christ. My wife, Judy, and I were talking about this just the other day. And we would say, remember we've been Christians about three years and God did this? And we thought, Wow! And then when we had been Christians about six years and God did this, we were going, oh, I never even imagined that was going, ah. And now after 40 years of walking with Christ, he just blows our minds with what he can do with us and through us. And so he finishes off Romans 12 too by the renewing of your mind, understanding, and desire for God's will uh, to which it says we're enslaved in Romans 7, that the result of presenting, not conforming, um, and being transformed by the renewing of our mind, we may prove, to prove after testing, uh, through actual experience, what God's will is what God's will is. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And then, uh, because you've been so kind and you've asked me to come back uh, next week, what we find is in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is the big dedication, give your life to God, from Romans 12, 3, all the way to the end of Romans 16, guess what he asks us to do? If we give our life to God, he asks us to follow his son's example by giving it away to others. That's what God wants to do with our lives. And we'll see next week that it begins with the household of grace. So it is a counterintuitive decision, a special Christian community, those who have entrusted their lives to God by not trusting what the world says about life, but what God says about life. And here's my final point that I want to make. It is in the aorist tense, which when I first started reading this, I started uh, this, I had to go back. Almost every imperative in the New Testament is in the present tense, which means keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. Just keep, just keep on doing this. And the aorist tense tends to separate time into points. 
that make sense? It tends to separate time into points. And what I'm realizing about Romans 12, 1 and 2 is that these are more like reckonings. These are more like thresholds. These are times when we are faced with a situation and the temptation is to believe and to trust what the world says about this. But we have to say, no, 11 chapters of grace, God will not let me down. He is good. I am going to give this problem to him. Just, just a couple of weeks ago, I lived with this disease, and one of the problems with this disease is I get a horrible rash. And, and that rash is the most discouraging part of my life. It's the thing, it is my thorn in the flesh. My thorn in the flesh is my flesh. <laughs> um, and so we were gathered at Newport Beach. I, we have this, uh, these group, four couples that we do life with. We've known each other for decades, and we gather for two weeks a year. So we are gathered at Newport Beach, and this was the week that we had gathered. And we get into each other's life. We give each other assignments. Um, and the night, the first night there, and I haven't rashed for years, I rashed. And man, it messes with my faith. You might not have anything that messes with your faith. You might be a better <laughs> Christian than I am, but it messes with my faith. And I was so discouraged that night. And we were upstairs, and we had begun the process. And I'm somewhat in charge, so I have to try to be sharp. Uh, I mean, as sharp as I can be. And... Um, and I was rashing, and I was putting on all of this oil. I was taking these prednisone. It was making my mind, if you've ever taken prednisone, it just makes you nut. You can't believe the stuff you're thinking, but you believe it. So anyway, I'm putting this on. I looked at Judy, and I thought, well, I'm going to show her and God. I looked at her and I said, you know what? I said, if this is it, if I'm getting sick again, because I've gotten real sick two or three times with the disease, I said, well, this time I'm not fighting it. I'm just going to die. <laughs> so there you go, God. There you go, Judy. Try to talk me out of that one. And she looked at me and she said, Oh, I'll be sure and report that to the grandchildren at your funeral. <laughs> and then she said, do you believe what you teach? <laughs> she said, we're with our six best friends in the entire world, the people that we ask to speak into our life. Tomorrow morning, you're going to tell them you have a rash, and you're going to tell them that it shakes your faith, and that you're having a really, really hard time trusting God right now. And I said, then they'll think I'm weak. 
That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I am. But God isn't. And I couldn't believe what the world would tell me, that God didn't love me because a God of love would not let me rash. I had to believe in the mercies of God that Romans 1 through 11 says are absolutely ours. I don't know what your rash is. If it's a rash, come see me. I got some good creams. <laughs> might be your marriage. might be a prodigal child. might be a heartache. It might be a diagnosis. Here's what I know. God has something to do with your life no matter how messed up you think it might have been when you walked in those doors today. You got to trust him. 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 God doesn't need prideful saints. In fact, he does everything he can to get rid of their pride. What God is looking for is the same thing Paul is looking for in Rome. He's looking for those Christians who so appreciate his grace that they say, I can't think of a better way to live than to say to you, my Heavenly Father, whatever you want to do with this life, you do it. I not only talk about grace, I believe it, and I act on it. Father, I thank you for Romans 12, 1 and 2, for this delightful passage on your grace and mercy. I want to pray for these friends who are here today, especially the ones who might be wondering if you're still good, if you're still powerful, and the ones who might be thinking, but I've messed up my life. There's not much you could do with mine. I pray that each of them would believe through the power of your spirit that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, is true of them. That you are begging them. You are begging them to trust you enough to let you use them. In Jesus' name, amen.